Amen. Acts chapter 5. This morning, I hope you have a Bible or a device. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. I wonder where our hearts are at this morning. We come now not to hear from a person, but to hear from the Holy Spirit, to hear from God through His Word. I'd like us to take just a moment and reflect on how open our hearts are right now to receive from God's Word. We're going to read a passage, Acts 5, 1 to 11, and uh, I I want us to to have hearts wide open to what God is going to say today. And if that's true for you, and if you feel comfortable to do this, I want you to just simply hold your hand out and open to symbolize your open heart to receive from God's Word as I read these verses for you now. Acts 5, 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God, we ask you to open our understanding to what this strange story could possibly mean to us. And Lord, teach us what it means for us to recognize your great holiness and for us to be holy as you are holy, to be a holy church. We invite you now in Jesus' name, amen. The church has gained a bad reputation in the last many years of being a place where you can easily be judged. In fact, the Pharisees that we read about in the Gospels, those men that were so religious and so righteous and Jesus often argued with them are are often symbols of how people who aren't believers view us and the way that we deal with them and the way that we speak to them and the way that we talk about uh, various vices that are part of our culture and society today. And many churches, in recognizing this and in not wanting to be Pharisees, rightly so, have swung to another extreme, uh, as we might often think of a pendulum swings, as so often happens to all of us in our Christian experience. We swing from one extreme to another. Uh, Many of us could say that we were raised in a kind of a Christian extreme in, in one form or another. And the danger is always that we swing past where we ought to be into a completely new error. 
And that's very real in our day and age, in which many churches now are so emphasizing God's grace and God's love that any concern about his holiness or any stand for truth or for right and wrong is seen as being pharisaical and judgmental, and we don't want to be that kind of a church. And this story today helps us see that both of those extremes are so wrong and so not what we want to be here at Wallenstein Bible Chapel. So I'm not sure where you are on that pendulum. I hope that we're not at the extremes. I hope that you're not at the extremes, a judgmental Pharisee on one side or, or the person who just says, just, God just loves you however, however you are, whatever you do, it doesn't matter. We want to be right where God's word would have us. So let's consider the story, and we want to begin by asking ourselves, so what, what was actually the sin here? Uh, the story actually begins at the end of chapter 4, where we read about a guy named Joseph, or renamed Barnabas. He sold a field, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, my, one question I ask is, how did everyone know what Barnabas had done? Uh, I get the feeling that for this to become part of Scripture, Barnabas wasn't making a scene. He wasn't saying, hey, everybody, I'm going to give everything. But somehow it became known in the church. I don't know if Peter stood up and said, I just want to tell you a story about what Barnabas did. But for whatever reason, that story and the way that Barnabas was looked upon as being godly and being the son of encouragement, he's called, caused Ananias and Sapphira to want what they saw that he had. That's why we actually get the connecting word in verse 1 of chapter 5 now. A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. See the connection back to Barnabas? So what was the sin? They sold a piece of property. They kept some of the money for themselves. They gave the other part of the money from the sale to the apostles to distribute to those who had need. Was there any sin there? Answer, no. You kind of have to read between the lines and the way this, this story unfolds to realize that that, that what they did was sold the land, kept part of the money, told everybody what they were doing, told everybody that it was like a parade, right? Like, watch, watch us, let us tell you what we're doing. We've sold a piece of land. We're giving the whole amount to God. But they were lying. And so what was the sin? Number one, the sin was giving for show. I, I don't believe Barnabas did it that way, but... Clearly, Ananias and Sapphira, because somehow everybody knew, everybody knew they'd sold this piece of property. Everybody knew what they said the price was. So they were giving for show. They were violating the way Jesus teaches us to give. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. When you, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is the way Jesus taught us to give. Do it in secret. It's not for show. It's for God's glory. It's not for your glory. But Ananias and Sapphira violated that principle. It seems to me they were giving for show. And then we find that they lied about their giving. They wanted the reputation of Barnabas. They wanted everyone to think that they were so spiritual just, we're, we're like Barnabas. We, we, we're just so sacrificial and the apostles are going to think we're so godly and everyone's going to be impressed with us. And, and it was all a lie. A sham. 
The problem with this is, so God killed them for this? I mean, how many of us have done our righteous deeds, whether to be seen or, or at least we hoped somebody would notice what I'm doing? We've done things for, we said for God, but what we really wanted was for someone to come along and say, that was really great what you did. We've all done that. I have done that so many times. So many times when I thought I was standing up to preach or to serve for God's glory and then when it was all over, I was just waiting for someone to come and say, good job. You're still welcome to do that. But, <clears throat> but that's not why we do it. But if, if God treated me like Ananias and Sapphira, I would not be standing here today. And folks, how many of us have worn the mask have pretended to be something that we aren't, especially on Sunday mornings when we, we make sure every hair is in place and the right clothes are worn and the right smile is, is given. And, and when people come to us, and, and Ken was an example of, of not doing this this morning, but when people come and we've had a lousy week and we're really struggling or suffering and they say, how are you today? And we smile and say, I'm just fine. And it's just a game. We're lying. What if God struck down every believer who ever pretended to be something that they were not? We wouldn't have to worry about COVID restrictions in our churches. But God didn't treat Ananias and Sapphira the way he seems to be treating us. With the grace and the mercy that we receive and in our sinfulness that continues, yes, even after we are born again and we are saved and when we do things for show and when we pretend to be something that we're not, somehow we're still here. But not in this case, God's judgment falls. I want us to, to notice the pronouncement that God makes through Peter to Ananias and Sapphira. He makes this pronouncement. It's not just that he says, okay, you, you lied. But notice the things that he says. He says that they lied not just to human beings, but to the Holy Spirit. He says again, and this is one of the reasons we understand the Holy Spirit is divine, a divine person, because in verse 4 he again says to Ananias, you've not just lied to human beings, but to God. And then when he speaks to Sapphira, notice what he says to her. He asks her, is this the price? You and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. And he says, how could you conspire? The word means agreement. Now, this is the difference between first-degree murder and second-degree murder. In first-degree murder, you conspire, you make a plan, you, you, you've got this whole thing thought out. Second-degree murder just happens in a moment of rage. But what Peter is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is saying to Ananias and Sapphira, you did this together, you talked about it, you planned it, you discussed it. You agreed to do it together. The level of the sin here was greater because of this agreement that they had, husband and wife, to commit this sin together. They conspired. They lied. Then he says, Peter says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Verse 3. Satan has filled your heart. So this morning we opened our hands to be receptive to God and to his word. There is this danger, even for us as believers, that Satan would fill our hearts, that Satan would influence. 
Ephesians chapter 4 talks about how if we if we're not forgiving people, if we let the sun go down on our anger, we actually give the devil a foothold in our lives. So it's possible for our hearts, yes, even as believers, to be filled and influenced by Satan. And then he says that they had tested the Holy Spirit. Parents, you ever been tested by a child? Peter speaks to Sapphira. Verse 9, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? The story is actually very similar to a story that happens way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua. And this is a story that happens when the church is beginning. The other story in Joshua happens when the people of Israel just had just entered into the promised land. And when they first went against that first city of Jericho, and God gave clear instructions that everything in that city had to be destroyed or dedicated over to God. And a man named Achan, almost a similar sounding name, keeps back that wedge of gold and that garment and he brings them home into his family tent and he hides them in the tent. That means everybody knew, everyone in that, who lived in that tent knew what he was doing. And in that case, Achan and his family were judged and killed by God. We don't read of a story exactly like that later on once the people have entered the promised land even though they sinned and sinned repeatedly against God but here as well in the church age this wild story of God taking the lives of Ananias and Sapphira we don't read of a story like that afterward but this is what God did here God's judgment executed literally both Ananias and Sapphira put to death it raises a number of questions and I've already hinted at my thoughts on the first question. Were Ananias and Sapphira believers? I think they were. I can't prove that to you, but I think they were. And we're going to see that uh, in the verse that we're going to look at just in a moment here. Were Ananias and Sapphira believers? One of the reasons I would say that is because of the way Peter spoke to them. You've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. That suggests to me that, that they were believers who had the Spirit of God uh, to influence them and living within them and this pretending that they were doing, this lying they were doing was to the Holy Spirit. That suggests to me that they actually were believers. The second question, could God judge like this today? I'm going to show you a verse that also suggests to me that, yeah, God can do this. And he does do this. 1 Corinthians 11, speaking about the Lord's Supper and, and the attitude that we come and, and, and then the need for us to examine ourselves. And Paul writes, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. He's writing here to a Christian church. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a way of saying dead. And the reason you would use this metaphor of sleep is because when Christians die, they wake up again. They rise again. He uses that here for Christians who've been judged by God in death. He says sleep, which again suggests to us that these are genuine believers. If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Paul is describing here a judgment that can fall 
and in the time of the Corinthian church had fallen on believers. Peter wrote something similar. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Another example comes in the seven letters that are written in Revelation 2 and 3, sent from Jesus to these seven churches. And a number of those churches are uh, rebuked for sin. And they're warned about the possibility of judgment falling upon them because of that sin. So this is not the only place in the Bible where we see God judging believers in the way that he judged Ananias and Sapphira. But that leads to my third question. And that is, why don't we see this kind of judgment today? Has anyone ever heard of a story where someone clearly is uh, inflicted with a disease or something uh, clearly because of sin, or someone has died clearly because of sin. We might, we might wonder about that at times. But when it was Ananias and Sapphira, what happened? Great fear came upon the church. Everybody knew what had happened. Everybody knew this was a judgment from God. Everybody knew why. But we don't see that kind of thing today. And my question for us is, should we be happy about that? Or should we be concerned about that? The obvious answer, the initial answer, is of course we should be really happy about that because as I've already said here, I wouldn't be standing here today if God judged me the way he judged Ananias and Sapphira. I suspect a lot of you could say, yeah, that's true for me too. I wouldn't be here if God judged me. When I think of some of the things that I've done even after I was saved, I wouldn't be here today if God judged me that way. So I think I'm happy about it. But then there's a side of me that says, I'm actually kind of unhappy about this because of the outcome and the response that came about in this first church, what we're calling the authentic church, which was the fear of God coming upon all of those people. You know what scares me is thinking that sometimes God's harshest judgment is not that he would simply take someone's life but that he would give us what we want. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes God's harshest judgment is that he simply gives us what we want. And my fear for us in our day, in our Church of North America here in 2021, is that we actually are not passionate enough about God's holiness and passionate enough about Jesus and passionate enough about our mission that God would actually act in this way for us. Because what we want, many of us as Christians, is that God would just leave us alone. Let me live the way I'm living. Let me do what I'm doing. Let me, let me have the fun that I'm having. Don't rock the boat, God. Things are pretty good. And God's judgment upon us isn't death. I wonder if God's judgment upon us is to simply give us what we really mostly want. And that is that we could just carry on and yes, be a Christian and go to church, but really not be that serious about God and his holiness and his purposes for us and not say what Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And what we really want is just to carry on the way we are. God, don't rock my boat. You don't need to transform me. You don't need to change me. And God's harsh judgment upon us, perhaps, is have it your way. 
And so we don't see acts of God, whether in judgment or in redemption. We don't see the things that, that we ought to want to see. And God is judging us perhaps in a different way. The point of the story, of course, is the reaction that we find from the believers who witness and hear about what has happened. We see it first in verse 5 when Ananias dies. It says, Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. How many heard about it? Lots of people heard about it. And then when Sapphira dies, it even ramps up a little bit. It says, verse 11, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. One thing that comes to mind is, God, this wasn't a great evangelistic strategy, was it? Is this the way that we win people to the church? You've got to come to our church. I mean, people die. But look down in the next few verses. Verse 12 says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. And then it says, no one else dared join them. Yeah, I get it. Even though they were highly regarded by the people. And then look at verse 14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Folks, let me say this to you. If you ever have the opportunity to speak to someone about Jesus and talk about what it means to be a believer, it is not your job to make it easy and to sugarcoat it, and to make it sound better. You know, follow Jesus. You're, you're just going to be so great. He's going he's to make things good for you. He's going to answer your prayers. That's not the way Jesus did it. That's not the way the apostles did it. We need people to know that to follow Jesus is a life of sacrifice. It's taking up a cross. It's, it's a life of suffering. We follow a, a rabbi who says to us in this world, you will have trouble. And we hold a scripture in our hands that says those who choose to live godly in life in this life will suffer persecution. So we don't make it easy for them. And the cool thing about that is when you're honest with people about what it means to follow Jesus and you still see God wooing them and drawing them to Jesus. It's so encouraging because you know it's God. You know it's Him. What do we really want as a church? Do we really want to see God at work among us? Oh, I hope that's what we want. It's not always what I want, but in my better moments it is. I want what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14 where he says, you know, maybe, maybe an unbeliever is going to come in or someone who's not informed about things of the church and they're going to hear you prophesy God's word and they're going to fall down and say, God is really among you. That's what we should want every Sunday when we gather together as God's people. We should long for, we should pray for God to show up in whatever way He chooses. And yes, even if that means suffering or rebuke or exhortation or judgment of some kind, if it means that God is here among us, transforming us and making us the people we ought to be, then that's what we want and that's what we need. I wonder uh, where our own hearts are in terms of this great fear. I mean, a lot of people in our day would say, ooh, this is not healthy. This is not, this is not good for a church. I mean, uh, people's mental health is going to suffer if they had this great fear. 
And yet scripture teaches us, and I'm not, you know me, I'm not, I'm not making any fun of mental health issues because they are real. What I'm saying is that actually fear of the Lord, as the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And the Bible from front to back exhorts us to be people who fear God for our own good. Uh, we will obey God if we fear Him. We will be holy people if we fear Him. We will worship Him if we fear Him. We will recognize our sinfulness if we fear Him. We'll recognize our need for Jesus and for redemption if we fear God. It's a really cool tension in the Bible because the Bible says on the one hand, fear the Lord, and on the other hand it says, do not be afraid. In fact, when God says, do not be afraid, he's generally saying, don't be afraid of your circumstances. And the reason he gives is, because I'm with you. Don't be afraid of your circumstances. I'm with you. On the other hand, be afraid of me. It doesn't really make sense. It's mind-boggling. But it's true. You know what keeps us from being holy people and a holy church? Is that we lack the fear of the Lord. Even when I say that, I, I recognize in our day and age, and probably in this room, there's people who would question whether a, a preacher should be speaking about holiness and personal holiness and challenging us to be holy people and to be godly people. And I'm not sure why we'd ever say that, because Scripture says that over and over. Peter quoting the Old Testament, quoting God, saying in, in 1 Peter, Be holy, for I am holy. The whole point of the whole story of creation is that we would be like God, that we'd be in His image. And because He is this vastly holy, perfectly pure and holy God, there is this idea that His intention is for us to be holy. And the whole point of salvation is our transformation from what we used to be into what we will be, which is Jesus. I think about this when I think about our discipleship path, which we've been introducing and showing you this picture regularly. The fear of God is all over this. I mean, the reality of being separated from Christ, that side of the picture is darker because it's a scary place to be, to be separated from God, to be still in our sin. We sang this morning about how before we knew Christ, we were dead in our sin. And Scripture says that we are in danger. We are literally under the wrath of God before we know Jesus, before we are saved. And what causes some people to begin to search? For some people, it's a recognition of their own brokenness. It's, it's a beginning of an awareness that there is a holy God that we will have to answer to. It's a recognition that I have sinned against God and other people. I can't fix myself. I deserve judgment for some people. And again, we don't try to sugarcoat that and soft, soft play that for people. And then when we come to the cross, what do we find at the cross in this salvation? The whole thing of Jesus dying on the cross shows us this tremendous reality that God at one and the same time is holy and full of wrath towards sin and on the other hand, loving and gracious and merciful towards sinners. 
That is the great tension that is real in the cross that we celebrate when we celebrate communion. God holy and just and God loving and kind all seen there at the cross. And how do we see that at the cross? At the cross we see Jesus, the holy, unblemished Lamb of God, crying out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said that because God was raining down His wrath and judgment upon His Son. Jesus taking our place, carrying all of our guilt and shame and sin on His shoulders as He hung there on that cross. And God in His holiness pouring out the judgment that those sins deserved. Why? So that those arms that were stretched out on the cross could become arms of welcome to everyone who could simply acknowledge that, that, that He was dying for our sins, that I was the one who deserved it, but He took my place and in faith receiving the gift of salvation. The cross shows us over and over again God's tremendous holiness and His unspeakable love and grace to us. You see, folks, we can't get caught up on one side of the pendulum or on the other because if we do we will be so missing the center of that cross and the heart of God the holiness of God and the fear of God should drive us all through uh, this discipleship path we don't strive to become more like Jesus uh, because someone's guilt tripping us or because we believe in rules and legalism but we pursue Jesus because we know He's calling us to be holy like He is. We know His intention for us is to be transformed into His likeness. And in response to His love for us, we love Him in return and we say, Jesus, we want to be like You. I am hearing increasing numbers of Christians and preachers today say that God just, God just loves you however you are. And he does, there's truth to that, but his intent is not that he would leave you there. I'm hearing more and more people talk about some of the hot-button issues of our day in such a way that it would seem that it doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't matter how you speak, it doesn't matter how you behave sexually. Uh, God just loves us and God just accepts us. And that's not true. Now we ought not to be that Pharisee with the pointing finger. And the reality is all of us are sexually and broken and sinfully broken in so many ways. So we don't point the finger at sinners. We point the finger at Jesus and we invite them to go with us into a life of transformation from what we are in our struggle to what he is making us to be. It's transformation. The gospel is all about transformation and the fear of the Lord fuels that transformation. I want us to understand that Jesus didn't swing wildly on this pendulum. Jesus, it says in John 1.14, and don't we love this verse, the Word, God Himself, became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what this verse does? It shows us that you want to know the evidence that Jesus is divine, that he's not like us, that he truly is God? It's this, that he could embody in a human life the fullness of grace and truth. 
so many of us gravitate towards one or the other and transformation is going to bring us back to the center and it's going to make us more like Jesus. And that's why he could say eight chapters, seven chapters later to the woman who is caught in adultery, these beautiful words, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more or go and leave your life of sin. Do you see the beauty of this, the grace and truth in this? That Jesus is going to call out sin. He's going to call out sinners. He's going to invite us to the cross. He's going to invite us to find redemption from our sins and salvation and transformation from our sins. And He's going to invite us to that as a holy God with a voice of love and compassion and grace and mercy. He's saying, come. All you who are weary and heavy burdened, come. I'll give you rest. And having come, we find that He says to us, now be holy. I will make you holy. I will transform you into my own likeness. He was full of grace and truth. Do you see why Jesus is at the center of everything? And the cross is at the center of everything. And it's Jesus alone who can make us to be a holy church and an authentic church. And may we have open hands this morning for him to do that work. We're going to sing in Christ alone. And then I will come again and close in prayer. Let's take a moment and uh, reflect on that pendulum. It is so easy for us to be the judgmental Pharisee and to look down our nose at others, forgetting that we are the sinful ones that Jesus had to die for. And it's so easy for us in this day and age to, to buy into what we hear all around us. That holiness doesn't matter. We've got Jesus and he loves us and so that's all that matters. And Lord, your word has reminded us today that it does matter, that holiness does matter, that you want to purify your church, that you want to create in your people a big sense of reverence, the fear of the Lord. So Lord, forgive us for ways that we have been careless about your your awesome holiness. Lord, would you help us to know what it means to follow a Jesus who is full of grace and truth. Help us to be like him, to live out those words, neither do I condemn you. Let's go and sin no more. So we want to follow Jesus into these truths. We want to be like him, not judgmental of sinners because we're sinners, but loving sinners, gracious towards sinners, and inviting them to follow Jesus with us. And as we do that, Lord, that we would have a deep sense of reverence for who you are and that we would be a holy church. Lord, I ask and pray that your fire of refinement would burn among us as needed and start with my heart, Lord. We know that revival always begins with a big sense of how big and how holy you are and so often begins with repentance. And so, Lord, if that's needed in my heart or in our hearts today, would you just lead us to the cross? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Be seated.